according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 13. Our first uh, Life of Christ class for 2012. <clears throat> Are you still in the same notebook or do you got a new notebook? Okay. We'll see if we can fill that one too. John chapter 13. We're dealing with foot washing. And we are ready for main point five. This is our 371st lesson in uh, the life of Christ. And uh, somebody asked the other day, how long are we going to be in this upper room? And I said, I'd be happy to spend the rest of my life in this upper room from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17 and just spend the rest of my life here. Of course, if we hear a trumpet today, then that will play out. It will be the rest of our time on earth. In any event, I expect several weeks, um, even several months in the early part of this year because there are so many events that we're dealing with here. And we want to take them one at a time and we want to glean everything that we can glean. This is really... This is a preview of the church. The church is still mystery, and he's not unveiling that mystery. But what he is doing is he's giving preparatory messages for the apostles so that once the mystery of the church is unveiled, once the day of Pentecost occurs and then mystery and doctrine starts to be revealed to the apostles and prophets, that this message is going to come back to them and start to make a whole lot more sense. We see this in John chapter 13, and Jesus says in verse 7, What I do... You do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And the hereafter is his way of relating the events that are going to follow the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, what he'll talk about in chapters 14, 15, and 16, the coming of the helper, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the new circumstances where a glorified Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in session and the Holy Spirit is indwelling each believer in uh, the church age as we understand it today. So, this is where we are. Let's start with a word of prayer, silent prayer, as each one of us can humble our hearts for the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for the truth of Your Word. And as we always do, Father, we want to acknowledge that this opportunity today is only by your grace that uh, who are we that we should be privy to your thinking that that you would reveal to us your your plan and your will and father that uh, we would be invited into your eternal counsel and yet here we are father that you have made yourself known to each one of us and father we acknowledge that we acknowledge that it's only your grace that allows us to understand such things that uh, the deep things of God are spiritually perceived. And so we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who guides us into all things, even the deep things of God. Father, we ask for diligence as we might study to show ourselves approved. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. Real quickly, we'll just review the points we've already covered. And, uh, and then we'll use today to get through point five. And the subpoints A through E. Under point one, we dealt with uh, the introduction in John 13, verses 1 through 4. 
and how uh, grammatically remarkable that section is. It's almost like it reintroduces the book. It's comparable to John 1, 1 through 4, as a, uh, a very uh, extraordinary introduction to a segment of material and all the contrasts. In John 1, he's coming into the world. In John 13, he's getting ready to go out of the world. In John 1, um, he, uh, his hour had not yet come, but here his hour had come. Uh, in John 1, we're told he came to his own and his own received him not. In John 13, we're told that he loved his own and he loved them to the end. Oh, that's a pattern for us because we, uh, we fall short, don't we? In, uh, we love up to a point and then we say, well, that's it. No more. All right. I've had it. I've had it up to here. You've, uh, you've gone too far and crossed the line. No more love. Well, we're told, be faithful until death. And what's the pattern for Christ? He loved them to the end. We don't have a point beyond which we say, okay, no more love. Agape love doesn't take into account the merit of the object. Agape love is, has no, uh, never fails. We understand that from 1 Corinthians 13. All right. And then the other details on this. I, I almost want to teach this all over again, but the, the participles in verses 2 and 3 are amazing. Because this is all of the things that went into the, the, the main verb. The main verb is got up from supper in verse 4. Um, laying aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. But the, the background for this, everything that the devil did, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So the devil has activity that led to this room. But God the Father has activity that led to this room. And the Father, having given all things into his hand, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. And so we see Satan's plan and we see the Father's plan and it's all coming together on this night. And of course, obviously, the Father permits everything that Satan's doing in his plan and uh, the Father uses it for his, for his overall glory. And we appreciate that. All right, that's, that's point one. If you want to go back and get those materials, you, uh, you certainly can. Point two, um, if I can find the right slide here. There we go. Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. We gave some background on that. All the guesses as to what in the world is an Iscariot anyway. And uh, nobody knows. Anybody that tells you they know for a fact is uh, very confident about what they are calling a fact. Uh, but uh, it is truthfully uh, a guess more so than a fact. And uh, gave you some information related to that. Point three, foot washing is an illustration of spiritual cleansing. And that's the, uh, the whole point here is that we have had our bath. We don't need a bath again. We just need the foot cleansing. We need the confession of sin. And the difference between the cleansing we receive the moment we're saved, which is comparable to a bath, a complete body bath. Peter uh, asked the Lord, you know, everything. Wash my hands, my feet, or my head and everything. And Jesus said, no, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. All right, because your feet are still walking around on this earth. We are in the world, but not of the world. And we understand that, that we're going to be defiled. We're going to commit personal sins. And we're going to need to have the foot cleansing. So we, we pause for silent prayer before every Bible class. And uh, when he cleanses us from all unrighteousness in 1 John 1, 9, that that is not a bath all over again. We're not getting saved over and over again. But we are being cleansed in the foot washing reality. The reality of what the foot washing metaphor is communicates the bath is what we receive at the moment of our salvation and uh, hopefully that is clear point four the work of christ between laying down and taking up this is what he's illustrating this whole exercise is what i call a prophetic pantomime a prophetic 
drama like Ezekiel or Daniel or any of the Old Testament prophets of Israel would perform. And here's Jesus laying aside his garments and washing the disciples' feet. And uh, then he takes up his garments again. And it's, it's a neat metaphor, it's a neat picture for how he lays down his life and he takes his life back up again. The Father gave him authority to do that. Gave him authority to lay down his life and authority to take it up again. Or even beyond that, when he laid aside his glory and that he might take it up again. And uh, the uh, application of that is we saw one week ago. And in between the laying down and the taking up is when he accomplishes the activity that cleanses us. And these passages here that pertain to the cleansing work of the cross are, uh, of course, important to understand. We want to relate to them. We want to identify with them. They form a significant part of our of our uh, hymnology, a significant part of our worship as we sing about um, have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Um, and how you know we are cleansed at the moment of our salvation. Yes, that is a truth. That is a truth we want to uh, identify with and testify to. We want to communicate that to this lost and dying world. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to confuse that with the cleansing that we now need on a daily basis to uh, confess our sins and be restored to fellowship. The difference between the bath and the foot washing. And all that we wrapped up uh, one week ago today. So we're ready to move on now to main point five. The application of this demonstration is not to replicate a ritual without reality, but to live out the reality in humble service on behalf of the body of Christ. The application of this demonstration is not to replicate a ritual without reality. In other words, he's not giving us foot washing as an ordinance. We don't add foot washing to communion or to uh, baptism. All right. He, He actually tells the disciples to go and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have an imperative to baptize. And we have an example in the book of Acts of how the apostles would baptize uh, new believers in the early church. And so we have the imperative and we have the example in the New Testament where the early church um, performed baptism. Likewise with communion. We have, the compar- we have the imperative. Do this in remembrance of me. We also have the example in the book of Acts and in the New Testament where believers partook of communion. So we have both the imperative and the example. With foot washing... I believe that we do not have the imperative, although some would debate here and they say, well, this is the imperative right here. Um, But I would debate that that's not an imperative. And then beyond that, we do not have an example in the book of Acts or in the New Testament epistles of the believers in the early church uh, doing that other than an example of widows who would wash the disciples' feet in a hospitality function, not in a, a church function. Okay? And hopefully we are clear on that as well. Um, I would refer you to point three and uh, subpoint A, that this is not to be confused with hospitality-connected foot washing. The widows who wash the disciples' feet in 1 Timothy 5.10 are not participating in a church ritual. Okay? It's, uh, it's, a lot, it's part of their housewife duties, their motherly duties, their hospitality duties, uh, part of what... Uh, Uh, prepares them for the ministry of a widow and not related to any kind of a church um, ritual. All right. 
So point five, the application of this demonstration is not to replicate a ritual without reality, but to live out the reality in humble service on behalf of the body of Christ. And this is what we see in verses 12 through 20. Verses 12 through 20. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Now, they don't, but they will understand hereafter. And uh, But he gives them the content here so that in the hereafter, that understanding will make sense to them. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now, it's the example that they're to follow, not the specific illustration. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak to all of, you, of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I sent, or I send, receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. All right, now this is the total context of what we're going to cover today related to this in subpoints A through E. But the point being, some people will look at this passage, and there are churches that do foot washing as a, as a ritual, as, a, as an ordinance of the church. They add it to baptism, and they add it to communion, and they do the ordinance of foot washing. Okay, now I've... Never attended a service. I've thought about it just as a visitor, just to see how they do it and what it's like and get my feet washed while I'm there. But um, I've, never, uh, I've never done it and I've never gone there. And, and I want to be clear. I don't want to mock. I don't want to, criti- I, I don't want to be critical of churches that do that because they have a biblical basis for doing so. And it's this chapter right here. It's... Um, uh, if I washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so if, if they take that at face value and don't understand that there's a principle being communicated, then they will um, apply the ritual and uh, perhaps not even see the principle. Hopefully they uh, are seeing the principle in addition to applying the ritual. Okay? But I'm going to stress, and I think I'm going to demonstrate pretty clearly, that the ritual is not what's being focused on here. That it's the reality of the humility towards one another. That um, the, the unwillingness to be of service to one another is an attitude of pride that's unbecoming a disciple. That it, that's an attitude that a disciple who says, well, I wouldn't, I'm not willing to serve my brother. Well, then you're not willing to imitate Christ and you view yourself as superior to Christ. And that's the application. Okay? And it's, uh, it's in the recognition that it's something new being taught that's not previously understood. Okay? So... We'll stress that as well. The application comes to exist in the hereafter. The application comes to exist in the hereafter. He asks them, do you know what I have done to you? Do you know? And the truth is they don't know. He already told them they're not going to know until the hereafter. Again, that's verse 7. What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And it's not... Some people say... The people that defend this practice say, well, the hereafter is verse 12. 
<laughs> that before he washed their feet or while he was washing their feet, uh, he says, you'll understand hereafter as if uh, that's going to be in just five minutes when he puts his robe back on and, and then says, OK, now you obviously have it all figured out. OK, no, he still asks, do you know they don't yet know and they're not going to fully know because remember the application is they're, they're, they're learning first John one nine before there's a church age. They're learning about confession in the church before there is a church. All right. So they can understand what this is about. The church is not going to have uh, a sin offering, a guilt offering, a trespass offering, a, a peace offering. It's not going to have a Levitical structure. And, and these disciples have no way to know this on this night. Okay, They're getting church age information ahead of time before the Holy Spirit comes that will bring to their remembrance all the things that are being spoken of in these chapters. That includes 13 through 17. All right. So the application comes to exist in the hereafter. And it's hard, but I encourage you, just put yourself in their shoes. More and more, put yourself and say, if I was an Old Testament believer and I didn't have a New Testament, okay, what would I know about the gift of pastor-teacher? Nothing. What would I know about the church? Nothing. What would I know about the body of Christ? Nothing. What would I know about uh, in fellowship or out of fellowship? Nothing. All right. The whole idea of carnality versus spirituality, our perspective of it is a church age perspective of it. Their perspective of it will be a clean versus unclean ceremonially as to whether I'm eligible to participate in temple functions, whether I'm eligible to participate in Jewish rituals and feasts and, and uh, holidays and observances and occasions and so forth. Okay? And that's entirely different than in fellowship, out of fellowship, or walking in light or walking in darkness. Our, uh, our church age is not what they were operating in. Okay? Hopefully... Um, some of this comes up in Romans 5 as well, where those that sinned uh, prior to the law and after the law, um, I think we, we're missing the boat if we're trying to view those guys as in fellowship versus out of fellowship. They don't have fellowship with the Father and His Son like we do, okay? Because they're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit like we are. I believe they could still walk in light versus walking in darkness based upon the commission of personal sins, and that's something that... Uh, we're trying to develop out a little bit in Romans chapter 5. All right. In any event, the application comes to exist in the hereafter. Much of what we're going to see through these chapters is going to be focused on what uh, the disciples are going to have to deal with after he has gone. And when the Holy Spirit comes and what the Holy Spirit will make clear to them, everything that's being communicated in these chapters, they're going to be clueless until the church age begins. And then the Holy Spirit will start to lead them in the doctrinal understanding of, uh, of these things. All right. Secondly, point B. Jesus is teacher and Lord. Jesus is teacher and Lord. And they would call him rabbi and they would call him Adonai. And he is both. He is both their teacher, their rabbi. He is also Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, that they would call Adonai. He is their didaskalos. He is their kurios, to give them the Greek terms here. And uh, that's what they would have as an Old Testament believer. That's what, that would be their approach. They would understand that he is their rabbi and that he is Yahweh, who they would refer to as Adonai. Okay? But he's more than that. And they don't have a frame of reference to understand apostle and high priest. They don't have an, uh, an appreciation for that. They will when the church is unveiled. But Hebrews 3.1 calls Jesus Christ the apostle and high priest 
of our confession. And what's happening here in this upper room discourse, the apostle and high priest of our confession trained the first apostles to go forth and establish the foundation of his heavenly calling. The foundation of his heavenly calling. And uh, on the slide, I have John 13, verses 13 and 15, and I would also add to that verse uh, 16 and 20, the idea of sending. The one sent is not greater than the one who sent him. And he who receives you receives me, and who receives me receives him who sent me. Okay? The idea that, that these are apostles. These are sent ones. These are going forth with a divine commission. So you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. For so I am. Hebrews 3.1. Hebrews 3.1. You ever have a verse in the Bible that you just wish was longer? <laughs> Right? Or uh, a verse in the Bible that didn't develop it any further and moved on to something different in verse 2 or the very next verse, and you wish there were about 10 more verses in between verse 1 and verse 2. I would really love that. It says, Hebrews 3 1, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest, of our confession. You know, wow, tell me more. Okay? And it does to a point. In the verses that follow, it tells us more, but it tells us more related to um, the contrast with Moses. It tells us more with relationship to our um, priesthood in Christ. Um, but still, I would, I would want more. <laughs> and what is our confession? And how do we hold fast our confession without wavering for he who promised is faithful? And how do we uh, consider it? In reality, if you want the, 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 the more that comes out of verse 1, the, uh, the more comes in verse t uh, chapter 10 with uh, our confession in verse 10. Someday I'm going to teach... Um, 10 and verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I would take Hebrews 3.1 and I would take Hebrews 10.23-25, put those together as a complete paragraph and then realize that everything else from Hebrews 3.2 to 10.22 is a parenthesis. <laughs> okay? Almost uh, the, the greatest side trip that... Uh, you thought Paul took side trips? This author takes a side trip. No, that's not entirely fair. But it is good to connect chapter 3 with chapter 10 and understand the confession of our hope. Our confession. Okay? And that's better than the... Heidelberg Confession or the Westminster Confession or the, uh, I mean, how many other confessions are out there? Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our confession. That is the church age, the body of Christ, the royal family of God.
So, you call me teacher and Lord, you are right. The apostle and high priest of our confession. What's he doing here? He is training the first apostles. Now, it's remarkable that he calls them apostles in the church age. The twelve apostles of the Lamb are these. And it's, uh, it's remarkable. He doesn't lift them up as prophets. He doesn't lift them up as priests. None of them qualified as priests. Jesus didn't qualify as priests. He didn't assign them work as judges. All right. Israel's going to have prophets and judges again in the in tribulation, in the millennium. But he calls them as apostles. Something that was not known in the Old Testament. He calls them as apostles. He trains them until he departs. He's preparing them to function as apostles after he departs. And he himself is an apostle. Now, Jesus is never called an apostle in the gospel records, but he is the one whom the Father sent. And apostle means sent one. So since the Father sent him, the Father apostelloed him, he is an apostolos. And here he's actually called an apostolos and high priest of our confessions. So this is what's happening here. John 13 through 17. The apostles are being trained for this new priesthood. A priesthood in which the Holy Spirit indwells each one of us. A priesthood in which the Holy Spirit guides us in the truth. So they are being trained to go forth and establish the foundation of His heavenly calling. And again, I would bring to your attention the expression in Hebrews 3.1. We're called holy brethren, sanctified, set apart for God's purposes, holy, and partakers of a heavenly calling we operate in the holy of holies not the replica on the earth but the reality in the in the heavenly places that's where we worship that's where we lay up our treasures that's where we purchase the uh, engaging in the heavenly economy that revelation tells us to engage in that's where our citizenship is we are partakers of a heavenly calling and that's what's happening here and so the stress is that uh, jesus christ is almost done being a sent one uh, tomorrow, you know, Jesus Christ is going to, well, tomorrow's the cross and then the resurrection and then 40 days of resurrection ministry. But Jesus is almost done with his first advent mission as a sent one. And it will be 2000 years plus before he comes back for his second advent ministry as a sent one. In between is the church where the apostles are the sent ones. And we start to see this here too, that the one sent is not greater than the one who sent him and that you guys are about to become sent ones. It's going to be a dominant theme in chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer. That they are in the world, but they're not of the world. And, and they need to be sanctified in truth because he's not taking them out of the world, but he's, being, he's sending them. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. All right? That's the, the bottom line message here to the upper room discourse. All right. Thirdly, what's happening here is a demonstration of humility. The demonstration illustrates humility. And when he tells them to go and do likewise, he's not telling them to replicate a ritual. He's telling them to live the reality. The demonstration illustrates humility. The attitude of the servant rather than the served. And he's done this repeatedly. He's done this on this very night. The parallel text of this in Luke 22 makes this clear. And that's not the first time he's taught it either. You back up to Luke 12 when he taught it on a previous occasion. I think he taught it repeatedly. And it was so um, opposite to the Pharisee attitude. It was so opposite. He, he was unique among all the rabbis of his day and age. You, you know, Look for a humble rabbi in the first century. You're not going to find one. They get the rabbi title by being... Um, not by being humble, but by being lifted up. 
So if I then, Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The principle being, verse, uh, I gave you an example, a type. Understand typology. We saw that in Romans 5. An illustration. It's a for instance. So don't confuse the for instance with the reality. Okay? That you should do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. And we've got to ask ourselves this. Anytime pride says, oh, I don't like that. Anytime a test comes and I feel like, well, why should I go through that? Why would I be assigned that? Just stop that arrogant question and ask the follow-up question. Why should I not? <laughs> what privilege do, am I claiming that entitles me to be immune or exempt from such testing? Why do I think I'm entitled to avoid that when Christ did what he did? And I'm not above him, am I? Do I have some kind of privilege he didn't have? Who am I? This very night now, if you remember, we looked at this not too long ago, Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, a couple weeks ago. Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. In the previous episode, when the uh, Passover was prepared and the disciples contend about greatness, remember that episode? And um, they're all a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. He says, that's not how we operate. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. That's not our role. We don't lord it over anybody. And we're nobody's benefactor. It all comes from God. The same grace I receive is the same grace you receive. But it's not this way with you. The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. Servant leadership. This is, I've got to tell you, when you contrast Israel with the church... You didn't see it in Israel like you see it here in the church. Okay? When you look at the princes of Israel, you look at the leaders, you look at the kings and the judges and so forth. Did we have examples of humility there? Sure, we had examples, but it wasn't commanded and it wasn't expected everywhere the way it is in the church. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? I mean, we understand that. You go to a restaurant, who's paying who and who's in charge? Okay? You know, I'm paying for this. That, that waiter's going to give me what I want. All right? And they better because I'm paying for it. And if they want a tip especially, okay? <laughs> I give good tips because I remember what it was like to be a waiter all those years. But uh, the point is, I'm paying for it. I call the shots, right? That's how the world works. That's the world's version of the golden rule, right? He who has the gold makes the rules. That's the world's version Okay, that's the world's version of the golden rule. And Jesus says, no, it's the one that serves. I came to serve. He's not the one who reclines the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. So what is your example? What should you be doing? You're here to serve. So many believers have this dominion mentality, this kingdom mentality. They want the crown now, but the cross always precedes the crown. And the church age precedes the millennium. We've got to understand that. All right. And uh, it was not only on this night in the upper room, but previously, you go back to Luke 12, he taught them this before. I think he taught it to them repeatedly. Luke 12:37 about being ready. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and he knocks. You know, we've got to be ready. 
means we're standing at the door. It means that we're, we're awake, we're not asleep. He's not knocking on the door and pounding on the door and, and waiting out there in the cold. But we actually see him as the door approaches. And we open the door before he gets there. And, and you know, uh, we want to be there immediately for his convenience. We're here at his convenience, not our convenience. You know, if there's a delay, you say, well, what's the big deal? He waits five seconds, ten seconds. You know, well, it is a big deal because he's the master. You're the servant. All right. And so if someone is going to wait 10 minutes or 15 minutes, it's not him, it's you. And you might wait hours so that he doesn't have to wait 30 seconds. Are you willing to do that? All right. And so whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. And that's what we're supposed to do. But now notice, what's, the, what's going to happen when he comes in? Something that would never happen in a Roman household. <laughs> it would never happen. Here comes Caesar from the forum. And his slave is there at the door. And his slave sees him approaching. And his slave opens the door. Is Caesar going to come in and gird himself with a towel and serve that slave at the table? Okay. He says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Wow. The master's going to do that to these faithful slaves? That's a shock. Okay. The Romans did have one day a year that they did this, uh, the Saturnalia feast. They had one day a year where for one meal, the, uh, the lord of the house and the lady of the house would, would uh, serve the table for their slaves. Um, but it was uh, kind of a formal tradition and not in any way abused. Because the slaves knew that tomorrow was back to normal. <laughs> and they were not going to do anything too uh, insulting to their, to their master. But the God of the universe says He's going to do this when He returns. To those faithful and sensible slaves that are blessed, that are prepared and watching. What a delight that's going to be. So, we want to have the attitude of the servant. We want to have the attitude that... Ha- and, and it's a snare, and we've got to remind ourselves, you know, constantly, we're here to serve, we're not here to be served in, uh, in every capacity. Pastors have to be mindful that pastors can get uh, misoriented and prideful and different things, and it's wrong. The moment they do, they start to, uh, they start to uh, go down that road of pride. Okay? We want to avoid that. Now, again, I just want to stress that this is not the ritual that's commanded, this is the principle of humility that's commanded and it's commanded over and over again it's expected of us we're to be imitators of god as beloved children um let's look over at first corinthians I'll, I'll show you here first corinthians 11 i think this is conclusive that what he gave the only ritual he gave is the ritual of the lord's table there's nothing in here that talks about um foot washing 1 Corinthians 11.23 I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed washed the disciples' feet and commanded that we wash the disciples' feet. No. Took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Do this in remembrance of Me. Alright? Different phraseology, different expectations than foot washing. Same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, 
in remembrance of me. All right, anything here on foot washing? No, not a thing. It wasn't a ritual he was giving. It was a pattern he was giving. as an illustration. And we're to serve one another. All right, we're to follow that example. So the attitude of the servant, and that's what we're supposed to live out. Third, uh, point four. Knowing a doctrine, or uh, D, I'm sorry, not four, D. Knowing a doctrine is only step one. Making application is where the blessing of inner happiness is produced. John chapter 13 and verse 17. In fact, the book of James says that if you're a hearer and not a doer, you are self-delusional. Knowing a doctrine is only step one. Making application is where the blessing of inner happiness is produced. John thirteen seventeen. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, can you apply doctrine if you don't know the doctrine? No. Knowing is step one. Okay, we're not. I think sometimes um, there's a, there's an anti. There's a spirit in our age that's unbelievable. And then God said it would happen that men will not endure sound doctrine. And they want to have their ears tickled. And they, and they don't want to study to show themselves approved. It's too much work. And we see this lived out in our culture and it just breaks the heart because there's never been a country on the face of this earth with the Bible teaching and freedom for Bible teaching that our country has had for more than 200 years. Okay? And yet now we got this spirit that is just is dismissive of, of, of doctrine, dismissive of Bible study. And so it's about the fellowship and it's about the community and it's about the, the, the and they say, you know, and then they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater and they're rejecting the study so that they can serve. Okay? Well, I would tell you that you can't serve if you don't have the, you can't serve effectively and you can't serve properly without the doctrinal foundation upon which why you're doing it. All right? And so, if you know these things, that's step one. But you are makarios if you do them. Makarios. Happy. This is the blessing of the inner happiness that we have in the Beatitudes and that we have throughout the New Testament. This is not eulagetos blessing. This is makarios hap- uh, happiness blessing. You are happy, blessed if you do them. Alright, so knowing a doctrine is only step one. Making application is where the blessing of inner happiness is produced. And, uh, and all the things and all the dissatisfaction that's out there and all the frantic search for happiness and believers that allow themselves to get their eyes off the Lord and they wonder, well, why am I not happy? And I'm not happy with my boss. I'm not happy with my job. I'm not happy with my wife. I'm not happy with my marriage. I'm not happy with my kids. I'm not happy with my church. All right? I'm not happy with my car. Whatever it is. And since I deserve happiness... Uh, my personal happiness is idol number one in my universe, then uh, obviously I need something else. A new job, a new car, a new wife, a new whatever. I need to just, uh, because I deserve to be happy. God wants me to be happy. Okay? We were talking about that in our training this morning. Um, William Lane Craig preached about that a couple weeks ago. said, the plan of God is not crafted around your happiness. God did not create us to be happy. He created us to glorify His Son. And that's going to happen as we're tested, as we're tried, as we're matured, as we're made sorrowful. He was made sorrowful. He learned through the things that He suffered. 
A day will come when there will be eternal happiness when former things no longer brought to mind. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Let me give. I didn't put it on the slide, but uh, I mentioned James a moment ago. We have to be doers of the Word and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. Who delude themselves. And so, the... Um, the um, where is that verse? One twenty-three. Thank you, sir. Perfect. There it is. All right. Putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. In verse twenty-one, you see it's a humility application, just like the Lord was giving with foot washing. With humility or in humility, the sphere of humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So hearing the word of God is step one. Hearing the word of God with humility to receive it. To receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You can't apply if you're not receiving it, if you're not humbly receiving it, if you're not if you're not here. That's why we we open in prayer. Again, not just it's not just for confessing sins and making sure you're in fellowship, but it's to to check your humility, to humble yourself, to say, Father, here I am. Uh, you know, you're not taking off your shoes because you're on holy ground, but in metaphor you are. You're humbling yourself, saying, Father, man, I'm before this burning bush right now, and you're going to speak to me. Isn't that awesome? The God who created the universe is going to speak to me today? Man, I want to pay attention. I don't want to be I don't want to be drifting. I don't want my mind to be going off to, man, where am I going to eat lunch today? Or I wonder if, uh, you know, I wonder if um, Pluckers is going to have their pickles on special. Or, you know, I want to, okay, how insulting is that? God is speaking to me. Does he not deserve my full attention? Okay, when the class is over, when he's done speaking to me, then I'll think about, you know, Lake Line or Burnett Road. Okay, but the, the, the truth is he's speaking to me. How insulting is it to be drifting or looking somewhere else or, you know, horrible. Now, so with humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, remember, when we have the term save, does that mean I'm getting eternal life right here and I was an unbeliever before and now I'm... No. Okay. Remember, we, we talk about saving in three uh, three phases. And the first one is when we receive eternal life and we become believers. But then God uses sozo and soteria for the second realm of salvation, which is our daily deliverance from sin, our daily deliverance from temptations and struggles and, and everything else. And that's what happens here. Thy word I have hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. Okay? With the word of God implanted, the humility, receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls. And prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. So in other words, don't stop with verse 21. Take it in, but use it. And not merely hearers who delude themselves. And what do they delude themselves with? They start thinking that knowing the doctrine is enough. They start thinking that having all this knowledge is going to score points. And so if anyone is a hearer and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and he's forgotten. He's forgotten. Why did God save you? And what's expected? That we're supposed to be a doer, not just a hearer. We're saved unto good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So on your slide there, and I'll go ahead and add it to my notes so that we get it printed. 
appropriately. Let's go ahead and add to that in James uh, chapter 1 and uh, verses 21 through 25. It needs to be connected to that. And you'll notice again, um, this man will be blessed in what he does. We have that blessing there in verse 25. You want to be happy? Trust and obey. <laughs> right? There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Receive His happiness. You know, quit insisting on what you think is going to make you happy. Just get in the plan of God and embrace the provision of His happiness that He's promised. Okay? All the Makarios blessings of the Beatitudes. Just walk in, in, in the light and you'll see that attitude of happiness there. All right. Finally, the, the point E, the apostles will be sent forth even as Jesus Christ was sent forth. The apostle and high priest of our confession trained 12 men, the apostles of the Lamb, and he sent them forth. Matthias didn't know it until after the ascension, but he was sent forth as one of the foundational apostles of the church. And by the way, you and I are sent, aren't we? We don't have apostles anymore. Who do we have now? Us. <laughs> okay? And it's kind of, uh, you say, well, that's depressing. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Are you kidding me? The apostles laid the foundation. We're doing greater things. We're doing absolutely greater things. The apostles didn't live to see the Reformation. They didn't live to see the Protestant uh, church. They didn't live to see the, the fully developed eschatology of, of dispensationalism. They didn't live to see uh, the, the, the final capstone of the, of the body of Christ. There were a lot of things the apostles didn't see. What a joy that we have to see these things. John thirteen twenty, He who uh, receives whomever I send receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me and the corollary to this by the way which encourages us in our gospel message is that when we are rejected don't take it personally because he's not rejecting you he's rejecting the one who sent you okay rejecting christ and you don't take that personally you just stay faithful uh, this will become a theme in the high priestly prayer of john 17 john 17 and verse 18 But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. There's the real joy, the real happiness. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Okay. No, we're left here. We're, a we're aliens and strangers, pilgrims, we're ambassadors, soldiers but to keep them from the evil one. Give us the armor. Give us the provision. Leave us here behind enemy lines. We're trained for it. We're equipped for it. We're designed for it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is what, this is what sets us apart. Sanctification is our experiential holiness. This is where we're set apart. We're not defiled. How we can keep ourselves unstained by the world. We keep ourselves transformed by the word of God. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now, let's understand that equivalent. Even as in the same manner. Even as in the same manner. Now, we're not sent into the world to 
provide redemption, but we are sent into the world to communicate the things of God the Father. That's what Christ was sent to do. Okay? Pick up to verse 4 and you'll see that. I've done everything you've sent for me to do. Now, as uh, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. In other words, as the leader, the apostle and high priest of our confession sanctifies himself. He sets the example. He conducts his life in conformity to the Word of God and he teaches what he's living. And he's living that by example. They're expected to do the same thing. Pastors today are expected to do the same thing. To, to set that example, to prove to be examples to the flock, nor yet as lording it over them, but proving to be examples to the flock. And so we see it. We've been sent forth, sent into the world. And so for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now, this is so huge and people ignore this because they want to limit stuff to the apostles. You can't limit this to the apostles. Verse 20 says, John 17, 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. In other words, it's not just the twelve. But for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words, the entire church age, all disciples that are, that, that are studying the New Testament. Okay? That's us today. That's any believer in the history of the church. For those also who believe in me through their word. The author of Hebrews includes himself in here too, by the way. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is the body of Christ. That's one body in Christ, in the Father, in the Son. God the Father in us. God the Son in us. Okay? Church age. <laughs> and you know, it's no wonder their heads were spinning. Where can you find any of this doctrine in the Old Testament? Where can you find anything here in John 13 through 17? Develop this out of the Old Testament. You can't do it. It's not there. And um, it's going to require the Holy Spirit in the church age to make these things clear to them so that they can start to operate in a new stewardship. It's no longer Israel as the stewards, no longer with the Levitical priesthood. They are a priesthood. Okay? I love that. To me, some of the neatest stuff, one of the neatest sentences Lewis Barry Schaefer ever wrote. Okay? And, uh, you know, he's got eight volumes. He's got thousands of words, right? All this stuff. To me, the neatest thing I ever read from Lewis Barry Schaefer was, Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. <laughs> Man, I go, okay. I can grab onto that. That makes sense. I love that. Uh, a couple chapters later, John chapter 20, verse 21. And here he's uh, appearing to him. Thomas is missing, but nevertheless, he's appearing to him, showing them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoice when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The apostles of the Lamb being commissioned by Jesus Christ, eyewitnesses of the risen Savior, and commissioned with apostolic warrant to lay the foundation of what would become the church here in some 50 days. 
Uh, a couple other places in Luke, Luke 9.48, Luke 10.16. Grab these real quick and then uh, we're complete for today. Luke 9.48 and 10.16. I hope you understand this applies to you. This isn't just pastors, this isn't just apostles, not just missionaries. It's every believer. It's everyone who becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ in the church age. You are a set one. And as you go, you have this capacity, your ambassadorial function. Um, ah, okay, this is the idea of. Okay, in the, the early verses, John 13, John 17, John 20, those are all about sending. And in these passages, they're about receiving. And, but it's the same concept. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who will be great or who is great. And then Luke 10, 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. Again, this is a receiving thing. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. And so once again, we can relax. We don't get offended when someone rejects the gospel. Okay? We don't know who's elect. We don't know who the Father's convicting, who the Holy Spirit's convicting, who the Father's drawing. All right. And it may be that we're just planting seeds that someone's going to reap 20 years from now. Okay? That's not our business. That's the Father's business. And he knows perfectly what it takes for each one to come to Christ. All right, so there's that. Uh, that wraps up episode 19. We'll come back again next week for episode 20, continuing on in the upper room and uh, rejoicing that <laughs> we have the blessing to do this. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy, love, and grace. Thank you for the example of our Savior. And Father, I just, uh, not only is he uh, so uh, unique, but in the history of the world, Father, um, that example of humility, that example of servant-mindedness. Um, <laughs> I think about all the followers of Muhammad as uh, murderers and plunderers and violent conquerors. And here's our Savior washing the disciples' feet and setting that example. And Father, I pray that we would be imitators of our Savior, that we would walk in love as beloved children, as imitators of God. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.